1: Hi, I'm Holly Fry and this is Drawn, the story of animation. Okay, one of my favorite sounds in animation is that use of stringed instruments being plucked in time to Bugs Bunny's footsteps. And I also really love that ping sound that you can hear whenever the Roadrunner takes off like a rocket. Cartoons are full of kachows and zips and bangs and whirs and all kinds of other noises.
2: It's like a fart noise.
1: On this series, it's become clear that each step, each roll, each element in the animation process is vital to create the final result. And sound effects are often called the cherry on top.
2: Hey! I said you are free to eat. Have a dumpling. Hey! I think we got enough sound effects.
0: I heard a quote somewhere that said, Music makes you feel, sound makes it real.
1: That's David W. Collins. He's a composer and a voice actor, a sound mixer, and a host of the fantastic podcast, The Soundtrack Show.
0: You know what's really, really interesting when it comes to animation and sound in general is that I think when people watch a movie, And let's compare movies to animation for a second. When people watch a movie and they hear the sound of someone opening their car door and stepping onto the street in New York City and then they slam the car door and then they're... uh, Oh, and by the way, it's raining in this scene, let's say. This imaginary movie scene that we're talking about. It's also raining. And oh, and by the way, the actor is also saying, thanks for the ride. Thank you very much. Right? You hear their shoes walk into a building and they open that door and then they're in the lobby. And then they step into the lobby. Most people think that all those sounds occurred on the set. I can guarantee you in that scenario, 99%, if not 100% of the sound was completely recreated in the studio, completely. Because you can't control this New York City sidewalk. You're not gonna hear what the actor said. You're gonna to wanna to control the elements. And even if you did, you have to localize it into different languages. So you're gonna to wanna to dub it. And if you dub it, that means you can't use anything that you did on set. The illusion in animation is so strong that people think, like, if you watch Toy Story, for example, oh, yeah, well, they're just in Andy's room and someone knocked over a bunch of
2: toys. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Okay, okay, you found me!
0: There's no set. It's all on a computer. Like, those aren't real footsteps. Um, I was an intern at Skywalker Sound when Toy Story 2 was in development. And I remember one of the sound editors went to Toys R Us and got a bunch of anything that squeaked and made sound and a bunch of like, you know, bouncy balls and things like that. And we went into a quiet room and we just recorded a bunch of stuff. Uh, at one point, they got a big piece of HVAC, and I took my fingers and went, boom, 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 through the HVAC. And those were cut into the footsteps of them chasing through the vent towards the end of that movie. Oh, it's okay, troops. The anti-gravity sickness will wear off momentarily. Now, let's move.
2: Remind me to glue his helmet shut when we get back.
0: I just remember thinking, it was blowing my mind because I was, you know, straight out of college, just going, none of this is real. And I knew it, but until you actually do it, You go, oh, of course it's not real. It's all from a computer, you know, but the illusion is so strong and there are so many sounds, hundreds and hundreds of sounds happening per scene or per minute, sometimes per second, that you don't think about how much work goes into it. The average person doesn't because the illusion is so strong.
1: Now, of course, the sounds we hear in animation are so immersive and atmospheric, part of such a huge, lush composition of music and effects that we almost don't hear them consciously. But in the beginning, sounds were used mostly as punctuation for the action on screen. There is a really fun interactive exhibit at the Walt Disney Family Museum that lets visitors try their hand at singing sound. The clip playing on screen is an old Mickey Mouse cartoon, and you can't help but notice that all of the characters are doing sort of shallow squats on a metronomic beat.
0: Oh, I get it. I get it. I get it now.
1: (laughs) Then you as the visitor get in on the act by trying to play little stylized instruments in time with the beat and according to the little guide that scrolls across the screen. And you quickly realize how ingenious early animators were to create the visible motion on a sort of beat.
3: You're actually on the xylophone. Oh, I see.
0: You're doing Mickey on the pots and pans, you see. Oh, okay.
1: Producer Noel and I tried our hand as amateur foley artists while we were visiting the museum, and we weren't particularly great at it, but we had a really good time. Oh, wow, we were so bad at this. Yeah. <laughs> so bad, but still so fun.
0: It was amazingly fun. <laughs> We did our best, though.
1: We did our best as animators. I think, though, that's a really kind of good exercise because you realize how focused someone has to be to actually sync. <laughs> yeah,
0: or like fully and stuff where you really have to make it convincing. Like with animation, like this rudimentary kind of, it's a little easier, but when it's like a lot of detail and it has to really, really match.
1: Yeah. By today's standards, that little exercise is super basic. Over time, of course, things became more complex than the on-beat sounds of those early Mickey cartoons. Animation historian Jerry Beck explains why.
2: I think part of that as well is that for decades, animation in general in this country has been thought of as a children's medium. It wasn't that way in the silent era or in the 1930s or 40s. But it was in the later 50s when Hanna-Barbera went to television and started making cartoons that were aimed at children that suddenly there were many, many more of that, and it became that way. My point is, even animated features didn't evolve much until the 1980s and 90s. god oh, this is awful. What do we do? What do we do? Ha, I'll go back to hell. That's what I'll do. I'll go back to... Oomph. And even then, once they started making money, real money, Hollywood money, suddenly people who were making, who were doing certain things in film looked at animation as another place to apply their craft. And suddenly you've got top-notch sound effects guys who are doing the sound effects for Star Wars or whatever, who are now doing it for the major features today. So you get a different feel, a different feeling about how to do this sort of thing.
1: sound designers are masters of developing audio with a mix of tools from rudimentary to high-tech. David Collins was learning the business at a really unique time, right at that transition from analog to digital.
0: Most of the classic animation we talk about was all shot on photochemical film with analog tape recording sound, you know, and put through a projector and having to be synchronized in the age before computers. And when I started, it's not that computers were new, but they were powerful enough to where when I first left school, I remember I was having to do a tape editing assignment in school, and uh, my friend Harrison, who I've worked with for years, is, he's a dialogue editor now. We were students together, he's like, why are we doing this? We will never, ever do this in the real world, ever. He was right, almost right. I did it once as an intern, where I spliced some tape on a scoring stage, and I never did ever again, because I entered the business right when... All of the tape machines were going in the dumpster. They were being recycled. And you watched the sort of clumsy, yet brilliant transition into digital. And it was painful, you know. I mean, there was a lot of just trying to figure out how to reinvent the wheel in order to ultimately make it simpler. And I remember very vividly sitting through watching um, this Oscar award-winning mixer named Gary Rydstrom. It's one of my heroes. He mixed a lot of movies. Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan... He's a director as well now for Pixar. And the summer I was interning, he was mixing a horror movie, and I got to sit in and watch it. It was The Haunting, if you remember that. I was got to be a production assistant, and I watched it. And every time he made a mix move on the console, he'd hit stop, and he'd go back to his cue point so he could run it through again. And the projector would go, and we'd roll back. And everyone would do this thing where they would just pick up their coffee and just, ready to go? Okay, go. Okay. That was July. Maybe that was June. By July, I was watching Gary Summers pre-mixed sound effects on Toy Story 2 and picking up the phone and talking to the tech. Hey, this new Do Re box is amazing. Like, you know, it's just digital. Like, I just, I don't have to wait for the film to rewind. And I watched him hit play, do a mix move. You know, where, like, everyone's opening up a cardboard box to look inside, and I think there's some Rock'em Sock'em robots in there or something in that that scene. Hey, Woody, are you in here? Nah, this one's empty, too. And he was, like, panning the sound of the cardboard box going, (laughs) like, out in the surround speakers in this gorgeous mixed stage up at Skywalker Sound. And he just kept doing it over and over again. And he didn't have to wait.
2: Pardon me, gentlemen, but have neither of you seen a cowboy doll with a bad arm?
0: Well, I know. I have Hey,
2: he was talking to me. No, he was talking to me. Why, you?
1: I'm... Having that kind of hands-on education, watching masters of their craft using traditional tools, and then embracing new technology had to have been just amazing. But sometimes a career in sound design and Foley might take you by surprise.
3: Well, it's really interesting because I I didn't think about getting into sound design when I got into the studio. I was there completely to get into the studio, to learn how to use it, get a job there, and then do my own music at night if they let me stay there and record my own stuff. Because that's really what I wanted to get into. I was writing music and playing with a band.
1: That's Michael Kohler. He is a composer, sound designer, and mixer, and he has worked on a lot of animation projects, including bumpers and promotions and shows for both Cartoon Network and Adult Swim. Eh?
2: Eh? Eh? You gonna tell me how good I look? I lost 15! Pounds? Wow! Ounces! My clothes are hanging off me! Yeah. Oh, I gott. Please tell me those ain't Heisenberg Brothers bagels... What kind should I have?
0: I'm uncertain.
3: Once I got in the studio that I went to, it was a big music studio, but they also were getting into post-production, and so it was commercial work and everything. Still not animation yet, but I started to realize the more I started doing it, how sound effects and foley and everything was basically, for me, like another instrument. Because it was making a sound, a tuba makes a sound, and also this hammer makes a sound. And so then all of a sudden you're starting to play these things, and they become... It's very much like writing a song, a lot of times, and you're scoring something with sound effects, which I I really started getting into. And I didn't even realize until I touched animation, you know, how that whole element went. But, yeah, it was a really interesting and really fun part for me to kind of make that transition.
1: Michael also talked about that shift from those early standard classic cartoon sounds to the more sophisticated work that came after. For him, it's the difference between cartoons and animation.
3: That's another interesting point about how we've progressed from what we've originally just called cartoons, and now we kind of say animation. You know, because cartoons started and very, very, very much cartoons, and the sound was orchestral, or the sounds were, you know, we have libraries, the Hanna Barbera and Warner Brothers Sound Effects libraries. You know, and and those are every sound. And when you hear these sounds now, you can picture the images. You know, and they're very handmade, organic. And now, when we have animation, we have a lot of stuff that's. You know, animation can be imitation of live action also. Live action, you know, I enjoy doing live action stuff, and I've worked on things, but when a bus drives by and you put a bus sound on it, it's kind of like, okay, that's fun. But when you get animation, you never know what you're going to get. And believe me, in in doing stuff for Adult Swim and everything, you never know what you're going to get. You can do it for years, and it's still a surprise every time.
2: Then I play the rhythm, and this freaking creature appears out of nowhere, and he's crying my skin. My skin. Prove it. I will. This happened to me. You just have the gun ready, okay? Nice! Yeah. Turn it in face. Okay, okay, stop playing, stop playing, man. Okay, I believe you, I believe you. What the hell was that thing? The rhythm created it from probably my magic plane. Like in the uh, the Matrixes when uh, you see the numbers everywhere.
3: So, animation now, I tend to use... Very few cartoon sound effects. They're very, very deliberate if you use them as that's supposed to be a cartoon moment. So everything is realistic, you know, and especially with Adult Swim shows and everything, when I go back to do cartoon Network stuff, you have those moments. And a lot of the new shows have those moments of cartooniness, but also a very another whole layer of realism to it. So it's kind of blended the way animation has changed visually and content wise. audios changed very much the same way.
1: that the field to explore and be creative with sound is wide open, the challenge actually shifts a little bit. The key is to create the right sounds for the visual story that's unfolding. Michael Kohler explained how he approaches this challenge.
3: There's differences in timing with different types of shows. You get something like South Park that cuts so fast and everything is bang, 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 you know, and so, the radio play for me most of the time ends up with that. Then it goes off to animation and they start putting things to it. I usually try not to put sound effects in at that point because you don't know what visuals are going to be and you don't want to have something where they're mixed and they can't take it off. The other part of it is um, when I get it back, you know, usually with a show at the very beginning before the show even starts or on that first pilot episode, you start building your basically what you call your Bible of sounds. You know, they'll do that with all the characters. Here's what the characters look like and everything. I start to build that packet of sounds that are a character's movements and all that kind of stuff and their ambiences for where they are, you know, and those get plugged in to the show automatically and then you start doing all the other sound designs. So it's a, kind of a process.
1: I thought it was really interesting that Michael brought up South Park as an example because David Collins did too.
2: If anything goes wrong, make a sound like a dying giraffe. What's a dying giraffe sound like? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Ah.
1: I think because it has such a unique style, it's an easy touchstone to use in conversations to illustrate the range of animation that's currently in production. It is clearly at one end of the extreme.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, did you
0: hear that? Yeah. Sounds like a giraffe is dying yeah. over there.
1: But when David talked about it, he was talking about how the mood of the sounds has to build the world of the show to create that magic that draws in the viewer.
0: There's an immersion that happens with sound effects that are incredibly important. And certainly when you're trying to create universes like, I think about Star Wars, for example. I think about Star Wars a lot. I've worked on a lot of Star Wars. The sound design there is so important in order to make the illusion of a galaxy far, far away credible. You need to have that to be immersed in it. And these sounds need to be unfamiliar, like non-terrestrial type of sounds, even though, of course, the source material is very unlikely. You know, the sound of a, of a TIE fighter in, in Star Wars Rebels on Disney XD is the sound of a baby elephant, you know, doing a this, Hurrah! Thing. <laughs> you know, and then uh, a car driving through a wet street. Shh. And then they take a tremolo and they chop it up and it goes. ch ch ch
2: <laughs> Too bad the kid wasn't here to see that. Whoa!
0: <laughs> right? They're maybe terrestrial sounds, but they're used in a very fantastic way. And when you put unexpected sound sources up against uh, wild visuals, you know, your, your mind just goes with it. You accept the illusion, and sound is very important. It's funny because not all shows need it, right? Like, um, in, in very theatrical shows, I think of Foley, for example... Foley is really important to give your characters weight and to kind of sell the animation. You know, you want to hear footsteps. You want to hear the sound of someone sitting in a chair and doing their thing and, you know, picking up props. And it just gives weight and credibility to the world. But if you're doing like uh, South Park, you don't want that credibility. You want the kind of floaty weird effect, you know. Or, you know, if you're doing Simpsons or Family and you hear Stewie go, distant door slam. That's the gag.
2: A jackal! Jackal! It's a jackal! It looks like a jackal! It's a jackal! Jackal! Time! It wasn't right the first time you said it. Why the hell would it be right the next 10 times?
0: Go! So sound can be used as as pacing and it can be used as a joke. It just depends on the style of the animation. But sometimes sound is what puts you into that universe. It's what makes you believe that, you know, Batman is scary. The music is doing that too, but, you know, ambient sound, big jump scares, dynamic sounds, things like that, those are all really important. Um, But what's interesting about sound is that it does play a very, very important role in the story. And there is emotion to it. I like thinking that there is emotion to sound design, even if that emotion is just putting you in the scene, you know, and it helps sell the illusion.
1: was glad that David mentioned that sound is sometimes a joke. In my conversation with Michael Kohler, he mentioned a number of times that he's used sound to punch up the comedy in a show.
3: And nowadays there's things that we've created for certain shows that I'll always get a giggle out lot of um, just because of how it happened. Uh, Birdman, there's a character called Reducto who is this manic, like basically like a manic paranoid coke addict, it seems. And he just moves around, and he's a small gun. He's supposed to be threatening us, a shrink gun, and he just keeps saying, he's going to shrink everybody.
0: You think we have a chance? It depends who the other attorney...
2: Doctor. Back off! I've got a shrink gun.
3: And when I saw the character, and, and Stephen Colbert did the voice, and did this amazing voice for it, um, he moves with this gun all the time, and I couldn't make him serious because of his size and the way he made the voice... So I found this little, uh, this old plastic bubble gun that had all these gears in it. You would crank it and it would start, and it, something was broken in it, so it rattled. So I took this gun and I shook it, and every time he moved, I had this little plasticky, rattled, broken toy sound going on every time he moved. And then I put these squeaks on his shoes, that every time he turned, his shoes would squeak.
2: Ah, oh, touch my ankle? Gun! You think I don't see? You think I don't feel your eyes like grubby little fingers, little children's fingers on my body? Back off! I'll make you You! Put that pop
0: gun away! When I was a kid, if someone brandished a shrink gun, he'd get a little bit of respect. Shrink
2: gun!
3: And it totally took any possibility of danger out of this guy, you know? And so those things always make me giggle a little bit. Even though they may get washed into the background, I, I know they're there and I see them. And it makes me laugh to just think of where I went with that to create a certain kind of element of how to shape that character.
1: I asked him if he ever drops Easter eggs into shows, little audio bits that maybe other people might not notice, but that offer extra comedy for viewers who pay attention to details.
3: Yeah, I have. Uh, and a lot of times it's voice stuff, um, uh, vocal things, because, you know, there's so many things that are done visually uh, they'll, that they'll draw in and animate it that you can't read unless you were to stop, record it, and zoom in, and then, you know, then you'd see, oh, they wrote this on there. So there are times when I do that, and I don't always bring them up. I wait and see if somebody hears them, you know, or I'll add an extra sound that's, like, way off screen. That, again, just makes me laugh. And it could just—it could be as simple and cliche as that quiet moment and the cough over there, you know. It could be as simple as those types of things. Sometimes they're buried a little farther in there. There'll be some kind of creature that has a, a, a little kid scream in it, you know, that just... And you're like, wait, it sounds really dangerous. He sounded evil, but there was some squeal in there or something. And it's like, yeah, I love doing those kind of things, too.
1: Um, listening to you talk, one of the things that keeps emerging to me is that you are almost like a comedian that tells jokes with sound. <laughs> do you think of yourself that way?
3: <laughs> I would like to. I mean, it, I have the opportunities to do that working in animation. Um, and I like to think that some of my audio jokes are funny, uh, <laughs> you know, but it's more, it's because it, it's about that timing thing. But I, I don't know if that's ever, I have such good material to work with to begin with. So I'm not creating the shows, you know, and these guys bring such amazing stuff and as crazy as some things can be, you know, 12 ounce mouse, something like where we're going over the top with creating these just bizarre and crazy ambiences and, and, and soundscapes and stuff. And I love the idea of being able to do that because that's always been my humor so I like to think that I can. Uh, whether I've been successful at adding that bit, I don't know. Uh, I guess that would be up to viewers to to tell me that.
2: Hi, is this uh, Russia? Hey, eat my! A**, you beat face forward having communists. I'm President Barack Obama, and I'm sending a missile straight up your poop shoot! USA, USA. <hums> Earth is remaking the Granite family. The what? It's a timeless classic, er. It was made in a land before time. Land before time or the land that time forgot? No, that's the land of the lost, you're thinking. Oh.
0: With Chaka.
1: Since Michael's studio is in Atlanta, the same city where we make this podcast, he invited our team over for a visit, and of course, we jumped at the chance. And one of the best parts for me was this small table covered in an assortment of tea sets and toys and bells and little oddities, all tools of the trade for Michael to create unique original sounds. One of the things that he showed us was how he makes the sound of footsteps on gravel. In this clip, he's explaining a problem, the egg carton that he was using to keep the gravel in.
3: It's surprising because I poured gravel into it And you would think just move the gravel around that's all you would hear is gravel but it's not you heard so much of the carton that i ended up just doing this um i grabbed a rag which was makes no noise at all and just made the sound in there because as soon as it's in there you hear that sound that you know you know every time you pull eggs out of the fridge there's a particular sound to it so this was the only way i can get gravel to not have any Outside sound, it was just specifically, so when the shoes are on it, it just sounds like shoes and you could place that outside.
1: And here's the sound on its own. It is just a guy sticking a cell phone case in some rocks that he's holding in a rag in his hand. But it is also completely believable as footsteps on a gravel path. He uses that same cell phone case to make footsteps on a tray of moss to simulate walking in grass and in a box full of bark to make it feel like someone is strolling through the forest. Michael also showed us how he creates a bunch of other sounds. From running toy cars up his arm to create a machine rumble... To using toys with squeak boxes to create otherworldly alien noises.
3: That's a pretty good sound. Um, What else do we have? This, haven't used yet. (laughs)
1: To carefully rattling tea sets to create the sounds you would hear if a waiter were approaching your table with a full tray. I asked Michael how much he relies on a digital catalog for sound versus how much he creates these new sounds in his studio.
3: There can be 50-50 in a lot of cases, which, you know, and I own just immense amounts of sound effects. I shouldn't even own that many, you know. And some of them I haven't touched in years, but there's one thing in it that I may pull out. So I have huge catalogs of sound effects and I keep buying them because they keep making more and they're more accessible and people are recording more things now. But when you're doing animation... Live action is easier because if it's a door, it's a door. You know, you may have it's maybe a metal door, a metal door with glass in it, or a wood door, you know, those sort of things. So you have those varieties and stuff. But with animation, again, even when they're trying to make something that's supposed to be, you know, I think about Birdman, and it's like, there are people in there, but there's also, you know, a hippo guy. Like, and his pants make sounds when he moves around.
2: Hello? Oh, sorry. I thought this was your gentleman's. Wait, are you all right? Eh? Huh? No, 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 it's nothing. I gotta be going. You're bleeding. That's Jelly Donut. Wait, you're the creature, aren't you?
3: I actually like doing a folly because it tends to be quicker, too. You know, I can't folly a car chase, so I have to build that, and that can be really difficult from all the different angles that they... I worked on Archer for a little bit, and there's like, car chases and gunfights, and all of it has to be built, and it's very time-consuming to get it right. But any chance I get, I have a whole basement at the studio that's full of bins, and one's labeled paper, and one's plastic, and one's glass, and one's clothing, and, and I just go there all the time, pull things out, and start watching it to picture and doing the most because I think it's faster and it's more effective and my brain kind of works to the Foley side rather than sifting through sounds and it's funny because uh, we have an animation studio connected to us to my recording studio and I'm always wandering around pulling drawers out looking for stuff you know things I need to make a sound with you know and going home and collecting things bringing a box of stuff in Um, so I really enjoy doing it and as well as I think it's much more effective in a lot of cases to really make the point what you're trying to make
1: And it turns out that part of the reason that Michael is so inclined to create new sounds is actually his background as a musician, because almost anything he can set his eyes on makes some kind of noise.
3: A very nice kalimba. This will be used musically. It won't be used for sound effects. Actually, one of the characters will be doing some of his own sounds with that, but let's see. It's probably because of coming from a music background, and I'm looking for instruments, and I'm looking for the sound that I want to create, and I do a lot of electronic music, and I, and I really went that direction. I got in the synthesizer, like, I can make anything with this, and now I can lay in all those other parts that I hear in my head that I can't get him to do or her to do. I'll just do it, you know, and so the organic part of making the sounds is probably because of doing instruments and, like, searching for that sound that I want and kind of making it organically, whether it's with a stringed instrument, you know, and I have tons of just weird, weird bizarre didgeridoos and strange things around the studio, but I also have a lot of synthetic and, and software instruments that I use and start from scratch, and so I think it's partly that. So just kind of click through a list and goes, that sounds the closest. I would rather kind of just go and make it and go, ah, that's exactly what I wanted to hear, you know, uh, and hopefully they like it too, you know, when you're <laughs> playing it for the client.
1: If you know creative people or if you're a creative person yourself, you are probably familiar with the fact that artists of almost any stripe are often their worst critics. So I asked Michael if he's able to appreciate his own work.
3: Well, you know what? um, I get to places where I'm like, okay, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I always feel like I don't have enough time because I always want to do more. I always want to tweak more. I want to adjust levels, and I just want to add more layers to it. And so I have to do these sweeps. I have a process where I'm like, you have to have this. You have to have these ambiences. You have to have these movements in here. You have to get the character sounds. So I try to leave myself as much time at the very end to do all the extra things. I like when something's exploded that after the explosion's kind of faded down, you hear something roll away over there or you hear that really distant car alarm. You know, like those little uh, sweet things are for me to laugh about.
1: Teensy-weensy.
2: This is a comedy show.
1: It is probably not surprising that someone as immersed in the business of sound as David W. Collins has thought a lot about the creative effort required to design sound.
0: It's like it's like really hard to make great, compelling, original, unique art. It's hard to find your voice. It's hard to make something uh, valuable. It seems easy because the tools are easy. They've certainly gotten a lot easier. We don't have to overcome everything that previous generations have had to overcome in order to figure out how to do this. And that's good in one sense, but we're still stuck with the same problem, which is it's hard to make this stuff. And even now after such a tremendous legacy of almost a hundred years of animation, I think it's even harder, you know, unless you're going for shock value or you're going for something totally avant-garde, it's even harder to challenge yourself to make something unique uh, that no one's ever seen before. Yet it still is happening. You know, there's still exciting stuff going on in animation. There's still exciting stuff going on in, in TV and film. And like, even though the tools have matured, you know, those creative challenges are still there. But you watch really, really smart people, creative people rise to the occasion and, and just continue to blow you away. And that's when that happens. And maybe it's just because we're getting I, I'm getting older and it doesn't happen as often as it does when you're a kid. But it still happens. And that's just incredible to me.
1: There it is. That animation magic. Even to seasoned pros, there are still those moments of wonder and delight. And hopefully, next time you watch a cartoon or an animated feature, you will have a whole new layer of appreciation for all the sounds that you notice, and even the ones that are designed so you won't really notice them. On the next episode of Drawn, we're going to talk about some of the women who have been part of animation's rich heritage, from silhouette animator Lottie Reiniger in the early 20th century, all the way up to the women who are producing today's cartoons. If you would like to write to us at Drawn Podcast, you can do so at drawnpodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us all across social media as Drawn Podcast, and you can visit the show on the web at drawnpodcast.com special thanks to all of our guests that appeared on today's show. Michael and David and Jerry Beck were all really fantastic at sharing their knowledge with us.